Perfect. Hey, Gary, sorry if there was a mistake there. I was in a meeting all by myself. I was wondering where everyone is. Mistake on my end. Uh, anyone able to let me know if I'm coming through okay? Perfect. Thank you, Jen. Have we a lot of stronger but sore bodies, I'd say, hopefully. <laughs> Three minutes past seven, I'll share my screen and get started. People pop in, they pop in. Uh, Scott won't be here this evening, so you are only treated to an Irish accent tonight. No, no Welsh this evening. This. Share my screen, screen too. But I have you guys there. You should be able to see the presentation also. My slides coming through okay? Perfect. So some good questions this week. Um, so I won't start off with any of the kind of exercise science stuff because we've some good questions that have come through. So let me start. First one. Does strength training reduce cellulite? So interesting, um, very, very interesting topic, I must say. Um, probably a complex one. Um, and science is, is not exact in this area, but what I will say, which is, if you'd excuse my language, that permeates the industry when it comes to this question. Um, so first off, I suppose, the, before we start, we have to say, well, what is cellulite? We understand First, it allows us to kind of dismiss a lot of the claims that are made. Now, cellulite is um, extremely, extremely common. And, and kind of, it's estimated about 90% or more of women have cellulite and a, a lower proportion, but not an insignificant proportion of men also have cellulite and everyone has it in different places. So what it is to start off, it's, it's simply uh, fat that presses up against skin. So if you think of the structure, of our skin. We have our muscle and then we have a layer of fat and then on top of that we have our layers of skin, so our dermis and our epidermis. There's some slight differences between male and female structure which might help to explain why it seems to be more prevalent in females. So basically all it is is these fat droplets that are stored beneath our skin press up against the skin and Obviously, they press more in one place than another, and it can give this rippled effect, the cellulite um, appearance to the skin. Now, why men possibly um, have, have a lower prevalence of cellulite is down to kind of two reasons. So first of all, it's you can see on the, on the left, the collagen bond. So how the fat is actually stored is slightly different. Women or females have it stored in these kind of vertical columns where males tend to have a more crisscross pattern in, in the storage. And the vertical commons or col columns are more prone to being kind of squeezed and pressed up against the skin. So that's one um, factor. And then the second factor is that males have slightly thicker skin than females. Um, although probably people would debate that. 
when we look at just the, um, the physiology or the anatomy, men slightly thicker skin. And so the, the fact that it's pressing up against the skin don't have the same effect. Now, if we, where we get cellulite and where it is visible on our bodies is down to body fat distribution. So we all store body fat in different areas of our body. So this is, if I brought you into the lab, we put you through a very expensive machine called a DEXA scanner. Um, we can estimate your body fat percentage quite accurately. Um, and we know how much muscle you have and how much fat tissue you have and where you store it. And where we store it, everyone stores it differently. Some people, when they store fat, it might go straight to their face, or some people, it goes to the, um, the glutes, the legs, lower stomach, wherever it may be. It's largely due to genetics and completely outside of our control, unfortunately. Um, so females tend to store it more so in the kind of hip and leg area, where males tend to store it more in the kind of lower abdominal area um, when it comes to fat. When we lose fats, interestingly as well, we can't control where we lose fat from. Just if we're doing exercise on our arms, it doesn't mean we're going to lose fat from our arms if our diet is, is good. So that's down to genetics. And kind of a cruel reality is the last place you lose fat from, so the kind of your stubborn fat areas, you could say, when you get really lean, tends to be kind of the bottom of the stomach and, and around the, the hip area. Um, and that's evolutionary. Um, biology would kind of dictate that they're your reproductive organs and the body is going to um, try to protect those as much as, as possible, those areas. So males and females tends to be the last area we lose body fat from. And you can think the body is quite clever. So then when it regains fat, it's going to prioritize putting it back to those areas. So for us, the last place it goes from is usually where we want it to go from first. And the first place we gain it back to is where we want it to go last. Um, and there's not much we can do about that. So there's only two potential ways to reduce the appearance of cellulite. So any of these things you see, you often see, um, I get quite annoyed with these rolling out devices to roll out the leg and say, oh, you break up the cellulite, break up the fat and redistribute it. Doesn't work. Any of the freezing therapies doesn't really have a, a significant difference because even if they could, temporarily break up and um, put the fat somewhere else. So with the freezing therapy, you know, it burns off that fat. Well, in a few days, the body just puts it back there anyway. It just put more fat back there. So the two things that we can do is build muscle. Um, because you can think of if you have, um, if you make a muscle larger, it presses up against the skin then as well and kind of can smooth out, it tightens the skin and smooth it out. And the second one is reduced body fat can potentially um, reduce the appearance of cellulite. Um, now, we've been practicing stoicism, or at least we're getting introduced to it during this challenge. And do not worry about what you cannot control is the main tenant, you say, of um, stoicism. We can't control it. We can worry about it. Most of us do worry about it a lot. And as I said, over 90% of women will um, have... Uh, visually um, apparent cellulite. Now, we can't control it, not much we can do. We can just exercise and acceptance is really a good idea here. There's a very good lady, uh, Molly Galbraith, who I've been lucky enough to talk to a few times. She's based in the States, but a few years she did something, uh, a few years ago, she did something that I really enjoyed. She encouraged kind of influencers and people prominent in social media to start, you know, 
putting up realistic pictures. And a few of these um, women put up pictures, but it was women who subjectively uh, would have what they called a very desirable physique. And I thought it was, it was quite empowering. So these pictures were all taken on the exact same day from Nagar Fanuni uh, was the first one. And she said that she's always been very conscious of her own legs and her cellulite, even though you can see she's an extremely lean physique, very visual abs. So she said she's always envied other women's um, legs because hers, no matter how lean she is, because she's extremely, extremely lean here, but still has visible cellulites on the glutes and the legs. And again, she's learned to accept it. And as we all should, um, and it's funny, she said everyone is always telling her how they're envious of her abs, yet she's always envious of someone else. So it's just funny that if we only were to ever look at um, Nagara's physique from the front, we may assume that, oh, well, if I was in her condition, I wouldn't have any cellulite, which just isn't the case. Um, Jen Sinclair, another one, very um, strong athlete. Um, really uh, a phenomenal athlete all around and in really good shape. But again, the cellulite still present. And um, these clips are actually from when she was about to release some digital products and she did a photo shoot. And she wondered, well, she wasn't going to do the picture on the right, include that in her promo material, because she said, oh, if I have visible cellulite, will that affect my sales? But then she said, well, that wouldn't be true to her own brand. And then she uh, posted it and it didn't affect her sales, strengthen her brand, if anything. So again, it's a common question that we all um, kind of, we, we get a lot. And there's a lot of companies will target the cellulite market. Why? Because such a high prevalence of women have it um, and men. So stretch marks and cellulite tend to be a very lucrative market to peddle snake oil, essentially, because there's not much we can do about it. We can just exercise and eat properly and potentially and um, will reduce the visual uh, aspects of cellulite. But again, it's, it's something that we just have to learn to accept and everyone, everyone has it. So that is the first question. This links in quite similarly as well. Um, can strength training help with being skinny fat? And this term skinny fat, I clarified with the person, it's they are, are quite light in terms of their body weight. They're at a very healthy body weight, but just don't feel that they look lean and they don't want to lose any more weight. So this is quite a, a common scenario people find themselves in. So body fat percentage first to define it, because when we think of people's physique in terms of how lean one person is, we're talking about the body fat percentage. And that's just the ratio of body fat compared to the amount of lean tissue or muscle that someone has. Now, interestingly, people think to get leaner, we have to lose body fat. We do not, which is the interesting thing. And what I mean by that is, well, if we think that body fat percentage is simply the ratio of body fat to lean tissue, so we divide one by the other. Well, if you gain muscle, so say we know to lose body weight, you need to be in a calorie deficit. Say you're not. Say you are in a calorie maintenance. You don't want to lose weight. If you gain muscle and don't gain any more fat, so say you gain a kilo of muscle, but your body fat level remains the same, well, then the ratio has changed, you now have a higher ratio of fat of muscle compared to fat. So your body fat percentage is actually reduced, even though the amount of body fat you have in your body hasn't changed. So you, you'll have a lower body fat percentage, which means you have a leaner physique. You will look leaner 
without reducing your actual body fat. So for people in this situation where they're in this, what they call skinny fat, the focus should be focused on getting stronger and getting and building muscle. And those go hand in hand as we've seen. Um, and in terms of nutrition, you set your goals to maintenance and are a slight, slight surplus. And over time, as you gain muscle um, at a nice steady rate and your body fat, um, amount of body fat you have stays the same, well, then the ratio becomes very favorable and you become leaner. So you do not have to lose weight to visually become leaner or not even visually to actually become leaner. So that's just an interesting shift in mindset that some of us um, need to have from time to time. Now, interesting question, how long does muscle growth take? So what a lot of us will probably experience um, on a strength challenge like this is we're getting stronger week to week, but we mightn't have noticed any changes in our muscle shape or muscle appearance or our muscle size. And strength gains come quicker than muscle gains. Now, this is, a very, this is a graphic from a research study we've done back in the 80s, so we've known this from a long time ago. But over the first few weeks of a training program, you get stronger. And these are because, as I discussed last week, we're training the brain uh, to get stronger in terms of the signals we can send to the muscles are stronger and we become more coordinated and better at the movement. So we're able, able to lift heavier weight. Hypertrophy, which is muscle, but that takes a little bit longer. So essentially, without going too deep into the science, you might hear this term thrown around muscle protein synthesis which is a, a fancy term. So synthesis just means to create something and muscle protein, well, muscle, we know what that is. Protein, the food that we eat, that's what makes up muscle. So muscle is just made of proteins. So essentially our muscles at any one time, we eat protein, it comes into our bloodstream because we break it down. So you take a chicken breast, we break that down and we break it into amino acids. That's what makes up proteins. And they're floating around our blood and our muscle takes the amino acids out of the blood to make new muscle. So our bodies are always breaking down the muscle we have, muscle breakdown, or building up new muscle tissue, muscle synthesis. And when our muscles grow, that means that we're just synthesizing more uh, muscle than we're breaking down. So what can make our body synthesize more muscle? Or what raises the rate of NPS, our muscle protein synthesis? Well, one, eating protein. When we eat protein, it goes up. When we're fasted or there's long gaps between eating protein, our muscle breakdown level goes up. What happens though, very interestingly, is you can see on the top of the graph here, this is just a normal um, trend that if we just eat protein, we get a spike, it dips, and muscle protein and breakdown synthesis go hand in hand. So your amount of muscle stays the same because breakdown over time matches synthesis. If you resistance train or strength train, and then put in a protein feeding, you get a higher spike. It really ramps up um, the muscle protein synthesis to, a, to such a high degree that consistently over days and weeks, the amount of muscle protein synthesis or new muscle we build exceeds the amount of muscle breakdown. And we do that over weeks and months, we end up with an increase in muscle mass. So, this happens slowly. The two signals we can give our bodies to grow new muscles is to eat protein and to uh, train, resistance train. So when we try to measure it, anything we do in research or science, we're trying to measure when we can detect, uh, it becomes to a detectable level. And it seems with muscle growth in all the research, 
it takes about anywhere, everyone's different, but it takes usually four to six weeks before we can detect new muscle growth. So till we put on enough that we start to notice it's there. So even though we're getting stronger from week one, usually takes between four to six weeks until we notice the muscle growth. So that's just something that's very important to keep in your mind um, because it can be disheartening when you're expecting to grow muscle or the muscles change shape or tone and we're getting stronger, but we're not seeing a change in the muscle. Well, the change in the muscle size, shape or growth, that just lags a little bit behind the muscle strength, but generally four to six weeks. So what usually will happen is we'll bring you through the four weeks, we'll go easy on that week five, we'll take a rest, and then you start to notice it big time in week six is generally the trend we tend to see is when you start to um, see it there. And it, it's funny, with the muscle growth, it's very like uh, weight loss in terms of, we know it's, it's the small actions day on day build up in terms of you take a picture of yourself today, stand in front of a mirror, and then you take a picture of yourself tomorrow, and you put them side by side, you notice no difference. You take one tomorrow and you compare it with one the next day, you notice no difference. You could do that every day. You'll never notice a difference with the one the previous day, but after four weeks, you'll notice a massive difference between the pictures. So it's just the same thing with muscle growth. So that was a very good question, a very interesting one. Now, this next one, what should I do on a deload week? So deload week is that um, week five, and this person, says to struggle with lap routine. And a lot of us do this in terms of when we take an easy week or week off training, everything else goes with our nutrition goes to pot or sleep. And we just get into very uh, a rush. We don't get anything done in that week. So as I said, this kind of week five is what we call a deload week. A deload week is when we take it easy in training or we take even a week off training um, sometimes. So the problem is people when they are training regularly, you're in a routine and structure and that tends to breed progress. And then you take the week off training and everything goes out the window. You don't eat well, you don't um, engage in any, um, what you say, positive behaviors or progressive behaviors. Well, I, and this is something I, I would um, say I, I found quite difficult as well. What I find works best and has worked best with any clients or people I've, I've worked with is you need to, so the reason you train is because it's important to you or you have an end goal in, in, um, in sight, but it gives you structure and routine. You need to replace the training time with something else that is meaningful to you in terms of, and even when I write programs, I have actually put in where the gym said gym session three, I have put in block off two hours, you have to go bowling or the cinema or something. You have to actually pencil something in that you're not just at a loss um, or just twiddling your thumbs. So when we train, it's, I won't say it's selfish, but sometimes we can, if we're training hard for something, you know, we, there is a bit of selfishness needs to be there that you're prioritizing it over other activities or over people. Um, so in the deload week, I'd always recommend replace. So you have essentially blocked off, say in this program, three hours in the week where you've said, okay, I'm training at those three hours. Well, next uh, in your easy week, that means you have three hours that you can't say you don't have because every other week you had them and you were able to block them off. That's where you, in those times, replace it with schedule to meet or call a friend on the phone. If uh, you have a, a partner, 
maybe schedule an activity you're going to do together or replace the training with something else that you find meaningful and get a sense of achievement and fulfillment with. So replace the 45 minutes with deliberate reading, say that book that you've been meaning to get to or whatever it may be, something that is meaningful to you and gives you a sense of achievement and fulfillment. I'm going to do that in those 45 minutes. And what you find is, Ever, since you still have a structure, routine, and you feel like you're making progress in other facets of your life, that tends to breed into the other areas that your nutrition still is progressive. You still look after your sleep and your stress and everything else like that. But again, it's just finding what works best for you in, in that given week. Um, now, next question. Very, very good question and an interesting one. Can you talk about how a woman's cycle, so the menstrual cycle, can have an effect on lifting performance or strength. So this is, what would I say? My, my PhD um, currently, this one of the areas I research is, does the menstrual cycle and do hormonal contraceptives affect strength and how we adapt to exercise? And the endocrinology, so the hormones of the menstrual cycle is extremely complex far, far, well, I won't say too complex, but I am very far down this rabbit hole. And it, it's one of those, you know, when you think you understand something and then you dig into it and you realize you haven't a clue. It's an extremely complex area. And there is quite a bit of research in this area, but still a lot more work to be done. So again, I don't have to tell you all, but when we're discussing menstrual cycle, they say that so a normal menstrual cycle um, is 21 to 35 days in length, but the average menstrual cycle being 28 days. Now, when I say normal, I did air quotes there because it's highly variable between individuals. Um, it's Everyone has a very unique cycle. And also within the individual, from one cycle to another, there can be huge degrees of, of variability. It can change a lot. But there are four main hormones when we talk about the menstrual cycle. So there's the key ones that people know about, so estrogen and progesterone. But then you also have FSH, so follicle-stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone. You also, when it comes to strength, have another hormone that fluctuates for the menstrual cycle called inhibin. Um, but we won't worry about that now. But very simply, you can split it into two phases, your follicular phase and your luteal phase. Those themselves... Can, and they're separated by ov ovulation, but they can be split then into kind of early, mid, and late follicular and luteal phase. But there's a general, um, there's been, what would you say, people that would say, oh, in your um, ovulation phase and into the luteal phase, you should be at your strongest because estrogen can be, um, have an effect on, on it's an anabolic hormone, it can have an effect. But you have a lot else going on throughout the cycle. So obviously at, um, would say at uh, ovulation, we release the egg and then the um, breakdown of the follicle becomes what we call the corpus Christi and it breaks down and releases hormones with it. So there's a lot going on there. When we look at the research as a whole, what we find is this kind of anomaly. Anecdotal research, when we survey athletes, females, they, we have a high proportion of reported side effects. So the typical ones you think of, there, there's in research, there's probably about 40 different side effects associated with the main ones, headaches, um, mood changes, lack of motivation, cramping, pain, 
fatigue, um, all, all the ones you would uh, associate. When we look at the actual research, though, and we try to track and we test female strength in the different phases, and we look at all these different measures, doesn't seem to make a difference. We can't say that, oh, in one phase, um, females are stronger, and in one phase, they're weaker. It's highly variable. So what we find is, because it's so different from female to female, there's no consensus. We can't just make a bold statement that at this stage of the cycle, you should train this way, and at this stage, you should expect to feel this way. Everyone is, is different. Some people are highly affected. Some people aren't affected whatsoever. So with that in mind, as I said, there's this kind of disconnect. People say, yes, it affects me. When we test it, we can't seem to prove it one way or another because it's so variable and there's a lot of issues with the research area. Now, what does that all mean for you? As a man researching this area, what would you say? I, <laughs> it would be very, I'd want to be a brave man to go in and start saying, it doesn't affect anything, get on with it. <laughs> because that's what the research might suggest, but it's not the case. What we can do at a practical level, and what we do with athletes at the high level is we recognize that it's highly individual. And because of that, we can't make blanket recommendations that are suitable for everyone. But what we can say is every individual is different. So what you need to do is track for yourself, start to record. Um, and it's very simple in terms of start tracking your own mental cycle. Start um, noting that, and there's plenty of apps that you can, you can do this in, or even just in a notebook, and start to try to identify patterns. Because again, it, it changes, it can be very different cycle to cycle, but if you start to identify patterns that, okay, every time I'm coming up to ovulation, or I'm coming up to my period, this starts to happen. And if that, you consistently start to see that pattern, well, then you can start putting strategies in place in terms of, if you know that around your period, you always feel bad, you always feel weaker, well, then it makes sense to put your deload week there for your own program. That's where the week where you take it easier in training. If you know around ovulation, I always feel fantastic. I always feel really strong. But maybe that's where you put that week where you're pushing the most volume or you're pushing the heaviest weights. Again, it's highly individual um, and everyone is different, but you're just trying to identify patterns within yourself and come up with strategies that might help you overcome that. Now, what I will say is we tend to talk a lot about the menstrual cycle um, when we talk about um, female athletes or female exercise. But based on the research, about 50% of people take hormonal contraceptives um, with the, the pill, the oral contraceptives being the, the most, most common. Now, depending, there's different forms of contraception in terms of the, the some are progest, progestin only and some are um, combination. But generally, what they exhibit is chronically low levels of progesterone and estrogen. And usually you take your, um, depending on the pill, you take your seven pill-free days or your non-active ingredient pills. And you have a little spike in those, pro, those hormones. And we have what's not a period, it's a withdrawal bleed. Um, for a lot of people, will we'll call it the, the period, but it's, it's not, not exactly the same. But it mimics, mimics the period. We don't know whether hormonal contraceptives long-term have an effect on um, strength or on adaptation to exercise. So again, 
we see a lot of people report side effects there with certain um, oral contraceptives that in their pill-free days, headaches, cramps, pains, same um, kind of side effects reported. So all you can do again with the contraceptive side of stuff is monitor yourself and self-experiment. And obviously done in, conjun in conjunction with your, um, whoever's prescribing things to you. So you're usually your GP or whoever it may be. But if your one form of contraceptive is um, reacting badly, you might need just to experiment with other forms of, of or, or not even oral contraceptives, hormonal contraceptives, or potentially even non-hormonal contraceptives, something like um, a copper implant or something like that is another option. But just to note that I, I think it's always a bit unfair that everyone just always focused on the menstrual cycle where that only accounts for about half of, of the population. Um, so something to be aware of. Okay. Um, and again, if anyone has any questions on any of those elements or, or wants me to go into any more detail, don't hesitate to stop me. Um, so how do we track progress for push-ups? So this is it's a complicated one. So on week one, you could have done them on your knees and then on week two, you're progressing to someone toes, then knees, and it goes up. How do we track on our sheets? So I would just, on the, for the sake of your own tracking, just do a little comment. Um, so either on brackets or right-click, insert comment on a cell on the sheet, and just note down which you did. Um, will you get an exact number in terms of you're trying to uh, calculate the exact intensity and volume of these? No, you won't. But we know that if we're going from the knees to the toes, we have a, pardon me, a higher percentage of our body weight we're doing a push-up with. So we know the intensity has gone up. And just over time, you begin to um, track it. But obviously, every rep you do on your toes is going to be a higher intensity than you do on your knees. So over time, if the number of push-ups you're able to do at the next progression, be it the toes or whatever it may be, you know that you're getting stronger and progress is being made. So that's how I would do it. And then hopefully after time, they're all done on the toes. And then it's then we'll start putting a weight on your back and we'll <laughs> keep loading that up. Um, and that's how we'll gauge our progress there. Um, yeah, sometimes I find the Tuesday pull days a struggle because my arms are tired from Monday push days. Anything to help with this as I'm worried I'm not maxing out my pull days. Um, very good question. And yes, it, it's perfectly normal for fatigue if you're training on a Monday for fatigue still to be there on a Tuesday. Um, I wouldn't worry about it too much. Again, we don't want to minor in the, the or major in the minor details. Um, will your performance potentially be affected? Yes, you probably will lift a little less than you could have if you flipped the other way around and you did a pull on the Monday and a push on the Tuesday. Will it make a massive difference in the long term? Probably no, because again, your effort in terms of the intensity of your max, your effort, you're still working hard. So you're still putting a stimulus on the muscle to grow. Now, what when we think of push and pull, we want overall kind of equal development over time. So how we would remedy this is if um, for this block, we're doing push on a Monday and then pull on a Tuesday, well, then the next time, then for the next five-week training plan, you're going to do your pull on a Monday and your push on a Tuesday. So then the push is the one that's slightly affected. Um, and then on average across the two training plans, it evens out and you'll have equal development or equal potential there. And that's generally what we do in terms of 
if there's a certain muscle group that we want to focus on for a few weeks or a certain movement that we want to emphasize, well, then we'll place that earlier in the week when we're fresher or we'll do a bit more of that because then when we're fresher and not as fatigued, that's what we're going to be able to perform best in and arguably might um, progress a little bit more in. But it's not going to be a night and day difference between those. And yes, there are questions I got. Um, I think, let me check this up, Sharon. I believe there was uh, two others on the Facebook that I didn't get to put into the slides. Yeah, I can see them here now. Um, oh no, only one other. So someone asked, uh, Amy, thank you very much. The tempo is really different in the morning and afternoon sessions. So is it best we only do the morning or the evening ones consistently, not flip-flop? Uh, Dr. P, I can get in 20 reps following his tempo, but with Scott, I could only get 12 following his tempo. Okay, interesting. Now, the tempo, when we wrote the program, it should be the same, should be standardized. So obviously we have a slight difference in the speed at which people count. So I can see that Scott is maybe a bit more stoic, a bit more laid back and relaxed. And Paul maybe in the morning overdoes it on the caffeine and is a bit more high energy. Now, I will say uh, Paul is quite a good friend of mine. And for anyone who signs up to run 100-mile races for for fun, apparently, um, obviously has a big excess of energy he needs to, to burn off. So he's probably burning a bit more in the mornings. Um, so I'll have a chat with him about that. But I, I wouldn't worry too much about it. Obviously, when you're kind of comparing like to like, it might be a bit different. Now, what I would say is if you're doing 20 reps with um, Paul and 12 reps with Scott with the same weight, maybe, you know, it might be uh, an idea that you just have to use a heavier weight when with um, Paul to kind of get that intensity. But it, it should be pretty much the same because our time under tension, the amount of time that the muscle is having to exert force um, is pretty much the same. So in terms of our overall effect after the, the few weeks will be pretty similar. Arguably with the slower temp tempo and the lower reps, we get a bit more increase in strength but yeah i suppose if you can keep to the same session it, it might help for tracking your progress like for like but in terms of your overall results of the program i don't think it would make um, a, a big difference but we'll just have to tell paul to lay off the caffeine a bit more in in the mornings um, so again if anyone has questions feel free to throw them in the chat uh maria go ireland thank you very much I hope you were watching the, the rugby. I won't even say at the weekend, but the last three weeks, we've had fantastic uh, results in the rugby. Um, so uh, if anyone has any questions, guys, don't be afraid to throw them in the chat or even unmute um, yourself and ask any questions. Um, or even if you have any comments or observations um, around anything I said there this evening. As particularly now again it's probably my own bias as I research the area but I'd like to hear people's opinions on what I had to say about the menstrual cycle and its potential influence or even contraceptives if anyone either themselves or any of their friends tends to notice a major difference between one um, during one stage of the cycle compared to the other.
If not, I'm happy to finish up early and let everyone enjoy the rest. Of oh, okay, here we have a question. Over the weekend, I have felt a tingling sensation in my mid-back whenever I lean over. No idea what I could have done. Could you help recommend anything that will help? Okay, so when we talk about back pain or pain in general, it, it's very complex. So just because we feel a pain or a sensation doesn't necessarily mean that there's any damage done in terms of, um, it, it's funny, we, when we look at back pain, we tend to see that it's very much uh, linked to our, our emotional state in a lot of cases, um, that people who are maybe having a rough time of it in their life tend to have higher levels of pain compared to people who are, are happier. So our, our, our brain is quite complex and our emotions do feed into what we sense. So a tingling sensation could mean a, a wide range of things um, whenever you lean over. Generally, if we're ting tingling, it could be just a nerve has moved slightly and it's just getting activated. You could say it's just um, pinging when you go over. What can you do to alleviate it what, without being flippant? Don't worry about it for a few days and see what happens. What you do want to um, avoid doing is not, uh, people make the mistake and get into what we call a fear avoidance cycle, where they sense something and they're like, oh, that doesn't feel quite right. I won't go into that position again. And they, like that, you try to avoid situations where you have to lean over, which over time actually can make the problem worse. So what I would say is if there is no pain and it's just a tingling sensation, keep going about your daily business, but keep trying to keep the movement going, that you're bending over regularly, and hopefully then it'll sort itself out and you become desensitized to it or the issue alleviates itself. If it ends up being persistent or it starts to escalate in terms of its pain or discomfort, then it's time to uh, start to reach out to a physiotherapist or someone like that who can have a look um, at it. But there's several things that can cause it, especially with the strength training. If you break down a bit of the muscle tissue, that could be just self-healing and some of the um, chemicals that are going on there, the immune response can potentially activate some of the nerves in that area and you can get that, that sort of tingling. So again, without being flippant, don't overthink it. Try to keep moving, keep active. But if it starts to escalate in terms of pain, or if it's only a tingling sensation, if it then escalates to pain, I would go talk to someone. Uh, my cycle is a bit messed up due to starting HRT. My cycle went from 17 days to 44 days. Yeah, that is a, a common thing um, in terms of when we, we call that oligomenorrhea, when a, a cycle is longer than 35 days. Um, very, very common. But very common then, yes, when we, we tend to find when someone comes off a hormonal contraceptive and goes back to, uh, I don't like the term natural menstrual cycle, but a eumenorrhea, just what they would term a natural menstrual cycle, can take a while for the body to re-regulate its, its hormones. And the same thing with uh, HRT, because when we put hormones into the body, we have positive and negative feedback loops in our, our brain and they detect new levels and it just takes a little time for the body to get used to the exogenous HRT coming in and to re-regulate itself. But generally it takes a few months, 
But obviously, if you are with HRT, you are doing that under the guidance of, of medical professionals. So any of those questions, um, you can speak to, to them about, but it, it's very common. Um, is there a reason it's programmed push-pull legs rather than push-legs-pull to give arms and maybe shoulders and delts for me a rest? Um, there's no strong reason behind it. It's kind of a common paradigm that we do push-pull um, legs. Again, as I said, the next time we would probably change it to push-legs-pull or whatever it may be. Now, what I will say is you think about giving the arms a rest in terms of, you know, push, legs, pull. Well, then if you've put the next week onto it, again, it's push, legs, pull. You've pulled and push after each other. That we're going to still line up after each other. Yes, maybe you'd have a day or two extra in between, but they'll, they'll line up in terms of, we wanted probably to overload the, the upper body because I know when we were advising this program, we had a lot of people we're interested in um, getting stronger at movements like push-ups, and that was going to be an emphasis. So we wanted to kind of really give a strong stimulus to the to the upper body in that. But as I said, if we were to go to another five weeks, we change the order that you keep rotating then through the different um, areas. Uh, but the shoulders and delts, uh, I think everyone is is feeding those. I, I was reading some of the Facebook comments today of people struggling to hold her phone and to hold, even brush her teeth. So um, hopefully it's, that's a sign that, it, that it's working. Um, when I was running yesterday, it felt like the front of my leg was bleeding or like blood flowing down it. Sounds crazy, but is it common? That is an interesting question. Um, is it common, a sensation of, I don't know. Um, it's not one I've commonly heard of. Um, then again, you can probably tell by me, I tend to avoid running <laughs> um, as a, a, a form of exercise. If anyone else has ever experienced that, it'd be interesting to, to hear from you guys. But um, I'm, I don't know. What I'm going to, if I was forced to make a hypothesis why it may be, we do actually, we have all around our body, we have certain areas that are more innervated than others. And that, you know, in terms of, and it's a test in terms of you get a, a really um, thin needle and they, they do this, this is how we actually test where nerves are. And you poke a lot of times, a lot of times you won't feel the needle. And then one time, oh, you'll feel the, the prick, but that's where the, the nerve is. So when we do this around the body, we find that different areas are more innervated than others. And that's um, why uh, certain areas are more painful or more sensitive than others. That can also vary from limb to limb, that one limb can be slightly more innervated in an area than others. So if I was forced to make a, a hypothesis, I'd say that potentially one leg might be a bit more innervated and that the sweat running down your leg or whatever it may, it may be the sweat, um, you can just feel a little bit more. Now, that is a stretch. I'll be the first to admit that is a stretch. Um, I don't know, but... Uh, okay, you know, someone else is getting a sensation of the blood moving and pulsing, something like that. Yeah, the body is, is, is fascinating and we can get these bizarre feelings. Again, it's nothing to be um, 
worried about. Uh, it's just something might be unique to you. Um, but it is, that's an interesting one now. Uh, I wonder that if I wonder if that is hormones as feeling like you have insects crawling over you is a horrid perimenopausal side effect could be a similar thing. Okay. Um, interesting. Uh, are, you, are you saying, Tiffany, that, that that's a common um, side effect you've heard of peri or menopausal side effect? Or are you saying no. that's one I actually get so um I would yeah I just wondered if Maria's sort of um feeling was could be also hormone related because I used to um I used to get really itchy and things and I just and now it's yeah now it's literally like you've got stuff crawling over you so I wondered yeah if maybe hers was that sort of feeling rather than sweat actually running or something like that okay that's interesting um it actually just feels like the blood is running down my legs, really. That's the only way I can describe it. I guess I am doing a lot of mileage at the minute, so I do know, um, you know, I do pick up niggles every now and again, but I do have that sensation off and on. Um, it could be something to do with this, my cycle, I guess, as well. And do you get it on both legs or just one leg? Um Sometimes it can be the right leg and sometimes it can be the left leg. Yesterday, it just happened to be the left leg. I am um, at the minute like getting sports massages and things like that done because I do have a few a few issues with my legs at the minute, but I am putting them through a lot of stress and strain. So <laughs> Very interesting. And if that if it was hormone related, I wonder, does it only happen, does it happen all the time or just every now and again? or uh, Just every now and again. Um, it'll it'll happen um so yeah i guess i the next time i'll um i'll definitely track i'll i'll put it down in the diary because obviously it was it just happened yesterday so um i'll kind of see if there's a recurring theme throughout my cycle i guess but, that's um, that's exactly when we say like it's so variable it's symptoms experienced by everyone that oftentimes we don't register that until we start tracking it, say, okay, at this part of my cycle every month, it seems that we, we get this sensation. You don't, do you take any supplements by any chance? Or going running or anything, no? Not at the moment, no. No, because just sometimes uh, when it's uh, an infrequent thing, say it's weird sensations, we have people that when they're pushing hard or going for uh, what they'd say, like one of their um, performance runs or one of their progress runs where they're trying to push hard they might take some, some, some supplements or pre-workout or something that they don't usually take and I don't know if anyone has ever experimented with high doses of um, alarginine or citrulline malate or some of these stuff or pre-workout and um, one of the effects can be vasodilation at the skin and you feel like you want to peel your own skin off <laughs> sometimes so that kind of you get a strong tingling sensation all over your, your skin and it's some people enjoy it and um, but it's it's quite it, it's one it's oddly satisfying but at the same time you want to peel your your own skin off so it, it, it's a strange one sometimes that's what you think yeah. i think i'll just stick with sweets and yeah chocolate <laughs> that's not the best thing thank you very much tiffany thank you i'll definitely keep an eye on that over the next next couple of times i run well i run every day so i'll keep an eye it's on interesting. It. I'd, I'd like to hear once you track it for a while if you come up with any patterns. yeah 
Yeah, definitely. Thank you. No worries. Uh, anything else, guys? Anyone else have any questions, comments on anything? We're all happy. Okay. Well, best of luck with the rest of the week. And um, I look forward to seeing you all stronger and hopefully maybe, well, next week's a tough week. You, I'm going to say less sore, but more sore, but satisfied, I suppose, is what I hope to see you all next Monday evening. So again, thanks for, for tuning in, guys, and uh, have a great night. I'll talk to you all soon. Bye.